Hey friends, how you doing? It's good to see you this morning, and uh, boy, it's good to be in God's house, amen? How many of you just feel uh, Him here today with us and worship? Man, that was, I didn't want that to end, and uh, maybe we shouldn't have had it end, it should have just kept going. But if this is your first time with us, I am Justice Froman, I'm the pastor here, I'm glad you chose to worship with us, and I hope you encountered God uh, today. And we are going to be jumping into the book of Jude. It's kind of at the end, the back of your Bibles, right before the last book, Revelation. So it's just this little, like, two-page letter in the back of your Bible. If you want to begin to flip there, it's only one chapter, so we're going to be in chapter one. And we're going to be in verses three and four today. And um, we're going to read it, and we're going to pray, and, and dive right in. The sermon title for today is Contend for the faith. So if you're in Jude, um, verse 3, you ready? Here we go. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that we just have this opportunity to gather together, enjoy fellowship and the presence of one another, uh, that we get to experience your presence alive with us here today. And I thank you that we get to open up your word, that we have a copy of your revealed word to us and in our language and that we get to know you through it. And, and so, Father, I just pray that you would speak to us and, um, Lord, that you would prepare us, Lord, to receive what could be a challenging word for us today. I pray that you'd guide my speech, Lord, that I would not operate out of my own flesh, but that your spirit would speak through me today and accomplish your purposes. I pray that you'd be glorified and, and the church would be uh, equipped and uplifted and built up, Lord. And uh, so, Lord, just help us. Give us understanding as we study your word together today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So let's uh, just review a little bit about where, where we are. Um, Jude, as uh, we said last week, or not last week, the week before last, Jude, it was the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same uh, mom, but different dad, because Jesus' dad was God. And so, um, so Jude was Jesus' half-brother. He was probably maybe the youngest brother, if you look at the list, and if they're listing from uh, oldest to youngest in Matthew 13, I believe it is. Um, his name is really Judas, but after Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, no one really named their kids Judas after that. And if your name was Judas, you started going after uh, by something else. So it's kind of like, um, you know, if you're Robert, you might go as Bob. And so Judas, he's now going as Jude. And um, so the half-brother of Jesus uh, writes this letter uh, to Christians, to a church. And um, most likely, probably Jewish Christians or mostly Jewish Christians who knew the Old Testament because he gives a lot of Old Testament stories and he just assumes that they know the stories. 
And, uh, and so he's writing this to Christians. And he says, in just a moment, as we're going to see, that he's like, I want to write you a nice note, but, you know, I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to write to you to contend for the faith. That there's a people who've uh, crept into the church, who have twisted the doctrine of Jesus Christ and began to lead people astray. And I want you to be equipped and prepared to not fall away, but to stand in the faith, to know the faith, to contend for the faith. And so he writes this little letter, and uh, it's one of the only letters that we have of its kind where it's all dedicated to warning you against false teaching and false teachers and equipping you and knowing how to, how to battle those, those things, okay? So... Um, this was written, we don't really, it's unknown when it was written, but it was around 65 to 80 A.D., so towards the end of the first century. And, um, and, and we're studying this because, because we live in a day where there's all types of people with voices um, who influence the body of Christ and Christians, but yet don't have sound doctrine. And so they begin to lead people astray, and it happens even in local churches, uh, possibly even our church. And so let's just go back and look, and he says, verse 3, A beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so he says common salvation. Now, common salvation doesn't mean that salvation is common in the sense of cheap, like it's a common thing. Not that it's a cheap salvation. He means common salvation as it's something we share in common. That he's writing saying we share a common ground, and that is our salvation in uh, Jesus Christ, that we are part of a Christian community. And uh, many people think, especially in the Western, with our, with our United States independence, autonomous spirit about us, there's nothing wrong with the United States. I love the United States. I'm, I'm grateful for our freedoms. But, um, but our independent spirit causes us to believe that we, can, that we can be a healthy follower of Jesus and not be connected to a community of faith. And he doesn't even see like that's a possibility. He's like, we have a common salvation. We're in a community of faith. And if you want to stand against the false teachers and false teaching, you have to know that, that you need to be in a community of faith. And so he's like, look, I, wanted, I, was, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you a nice little positive note about salvation in Jesus. And I love all of that. But I've just found it necessary to write about something else. And um, it's nice to talk about positive things. Believe me, as a preacher, I, I can tell you that I prefer to come up here and tell you, like preach positive messages. Things that are uplifting and encouraging and everybody leaves just, yay, you know, and smile on their face. But there's times where you have to bring a difficult word. There's times where you have to address some hard things and and sometimes God calls us to talk about difficult subjects. We're going to talk about one today. And um, sometimes it's good to have hard conversations. And, and avoiding conflict or avoiding confrontation is not always the godly thing. Sometimes you have to uh, address it head on. And so two things we're going to see today. Uh, and the first one is this. Um, he says in verse 3, I found it necessary to write, write to appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
So the first thing, the first point is fight for the faith. That's what he says. He says fight, contend for the faith. Now this word contend uh, is a, a Greek word, ipagonizumai. I learned that just for you guys. Ipagonizumai, which maybe you heard a little bit in there, but it, it's where we get our word agonize. Ipagonizumai, where we get our word agonize or struggle or fight. Uh, one uh, commentator said this, the ancient Greek word translated contend comes from an athletic word from a wrestling mat. It's a strengthened form of the word to agonize. Therefore, contend speaks of hard and diligent work. And so it's this idea of struggling or fighting, uh, defending something. Uh, it's a military term or an athletic term. It's the idea of you're standing on a hill and you, and you are defending your territory. How many of you have ever played King of the Hill? Whenever I was a kid, we, we had a park uh, not too far from our house, and on the park was this gigantic sand mound, and, um, and as a kid, I guess it was gigantic, I don't know really how big it was, but what we would do, I had, I had one of eight kids, so there's, I have several brothers and sisters, and we'd go, and we'd play king of the hill. And we get on top, one of us get on top of the hill, you know, you ever played, and your job as being on top of the hill is to defend the hill. And to keep your spot on top. And you agonize, you wrestle, you struggle to keep that spot. That's the idea. That, um, that we are fighting for something. But what is it that we're fighting for? He says fight, contend for the faith. The faith. So the faith here is not necessarily your faith or just faith. It's not, he's not just saying fight for belief or fight for your faith in the sense of you have some things you believe and you need to fight for them. That's not what he's saying. The faith is a technical term. Um, it's the settled foundational doctrines of Christianity. The basic essential body of truth of Christianity. Dr. Edwin Blum says this. He says, the faith doesn't mean our own personal belief or faith in the sense of trusting God. The phrase the faith means the essential truths of the gospel that are all, all true Christians hold in common. Let me say that again. The essential truths of the gospel that all true Christians hold in common. The faith is used in this sense repeatedly through the New Testament. Let me, let me read you a, a few references where this is used. Um, Acts 6, 7 says, The word of the Lord God increased, continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 13.8 says, uh, But Elimus, 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 we're going to call him Elon, how about that? <laughs> Coincidentally, he's a magician, okay? The magician, for that's what his name means, his name means magician, opposed them uh, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So this, this magician, Elon, he's trying, to he's trying to turn people away from the faith. Acts 14.22 says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Acts 16.5 says the churches were strengthened in 
the faith. And they increased in number daily. Colossians 2.7. Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith. Just as you were taught. 1 Timothy 1.2 says to Timothy. My true child in the faith. Galatians 1.23 says they only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy. So Paul used to try to destroy the faith, and now he's preaching the faith. And so the faith is the essential, basic, foundational body of truth that is the Christian faith. And um, one summary of it in the New Testament, or one piece of it in the New Testament, is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, where Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, does that language sound um, familiar? Verse 3, he says, um, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So here Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The idea is that the faith is not just your personal belief, but it is an um, objective a body of truth um, that all true Christians hold to, that all true Christians believe. And we must contend earnestly for the truth. This faith, this body of truth... Um, it it has been protected in one form or the other throughout uh, the New Testament. And so, if we're going to fight for the faith, we're going to contend and wrestle to protect this thing, then you have to know what the faith is, right? You have to know what it is. Like, to believe, you don't necessarily... Sometimes you come to Christ, you, you heard the gospel, and you come to Christ, and you truly believe, and you're saved but you don't quite totally understand what all happened. That's possible. But to fight for it, to contend for it, to defend it, you have to know what it is. And so we should grow in our understanding of what the faith is. Um, James Shaddix and Daniel Aiken in their commentary says that they believe that there's 12 non-negotiables to which Scripture and history um, of the church give uh, witness to. And here's what he says, here's 12 things. If you're wondering, like, what are some of the main uh, tenets of the faith? Here's some of them. Uh, The inerrancy and infallibility of the Holy Scriptures. So the idea that this is God's Word, and it's infallible, and it's sufficient for us to know God, and it's all from the Lord. It's perfect and complete. Uh, Number two is the full and eternal deity of Christ, that Christ is the Son of God, that He is fully and totally God, eternal deity. The miraculous virgin birth and sinless life of Jesus the Messiah. That he lived a perfect life because he was born of a virgin, not inheriting the sin nature of man. Uh, The historical creation of man and woman made in God's image. A literal historical Adam and Eve. That God created man and woman and they're created in his image. The Imago Dei. That's pretty essential. Verse uh, number five, the sanctity of all life from conception to natural death. 
that life has value because we're made in the image of God. And so there's, there's sanctity there. Verse 6, or, or, or number 6, the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. The sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. You're like, well, how, how is that an essential doctrine? Well, one is because Jesus defined marriage between a man and a woman. But also, one of the reasons why is because the, the marriage, uh, Ephesians tells us that marriage is a picture or an image or an illustration of the gospel. That um, marriage between a man and a woman, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives uh, respect your husbands as the church does to Christ. So it's this picture, and Paul calls it a mystery in Ephesians. He's like, this is a mystery, this whole marriage thing, but it gives a picture of the gospel. And so whenever you begin to tamper with marriage, you're tampering with uh, an image of the gospel is, is one thing. So this is essential. Uh, seven, the, uh, sin, the, sinfulness, the sinfulness of all human persons, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The substitutionary death of Christ for all sinners, that Christ died in our place for our sin. The bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. We don't believe it was a mirage. We don't believe he was a ghost. We believe that he bodily rose from the grave. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other name by which we are saved than that of our Lord Jesus Christ. The exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's only, He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him and the return of Christ, and the assignment of all people to either eternal blessedness in heaven or eternal condemnation in hell. Heaven and hell are real places of eternal existence, and you will spend forever in one of the two. These are essential doctrines, cardinal doctrines. If you don't um, believe in these, you aren't Christians. You can call yourself a Christian, but if you don't believe in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, you're not a Christian. These are essential matters. We believe that there are uh, two uh, major groups of beliefs, that there are essential things that we must have unity in to be uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. But then there's open-handed things, non-essential beliefs, that we can hold open and not have to be dogmatic about. So whenever I say fight for the faith, I'm not talking about fight for your faith. I'm not talking about fight for all your beliefs, all the little things that you believe are true that you have convictions about. You can have strong convictions about non-essential matters, and you don't need to go fight with other Christians about it. But there are some majors that uh, true Christians need to hold tightly and defend vigorously. The faith has been delivered. Notice he says it's once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered. The word of God, the faith, was given once in a period of time. We believe in a closed canon. That God is pleased with the word that he has given us. That it is perfect. 
and sufficient. And he is not um, continuing to add to Scripture or write Scripture. That Scripture is complete. It was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a popular uh, reality to believe in faith once for all. It's not popular to believe that faith was once for all delivered to the saints. Instead, most people want to believe in the faith they make up as they go along and decide what is right for them. We don't like the idea that the faith is settled and if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to believe and and hold tight to those things. We don't believe, like, I've got faith, and I'm going to have a little bit of this, and I'm going to believe a little bit of that, and I'm going to kind of build my own little religion. Like, that's what we like. We like to believe that it's kind of a little more malleable. But more people believe in the faith that is in my heart than the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. The faith is built like it's, it's a foundational thing and you only lay a foundation once. It was delivered. It was given. And... Uh, it's established. So, so today, and maybe, I mean, tons of books are sold and courses and, and uh, tons of preachers are getting rich on this idea of, I have some new information. I was transported into heaven and I spoke with Jesus himself face to face. And he gave me a secret book that he hasn't shared with anyone. And I'm here to share it with you. As long as you make a one-time donation of $1,000, <laughs> like there's, here, here's a good, here's a good uh, truism. If it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. In the sense that uh, there is a faith that has been delivered and is sealed and settled once for all delivered to the saints. And um, throughout church history, we've had people, lots more than me and lots more than you, who've dedicated their lives to studying the faith, and there's been, it's been settled. And so there's different ways for us to communicate the same message and get creative in how we preach the truth, but there's nothing new coming. And if it's, if it's not in the Word, um, then it's, it's not objectively from God. And so this faith is settled and it's, it's worth fighting for. We contend earnestly for the faith because it's valuable. If you walked into like a, a museum, an art gallery, and there was no like security system and there was no guards and the doors were unlocked, you'd, you'd probably assess that there's probably nothing of value here. Because of valuable things are protected and fought for. And the faith is valuable and it's worth protecting, worth fighting for. Now, but you might say, but it sounds like a great job for pastors and missionaries, um, people who have, are, are professional Christians. You know, you've studied these things. You, you know all the arguments. You fight for it, preacher. Amen. But notice, he says, um, I found it necessary 
to write appealing to uh, you. To you. Now, who's the you? Well, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are, to those who are called. So he's saying is, if you are a, a Christian, I, I want to write to you about our common salvation, those who are, who are in the faith, who know Jesus. Just emphasize that word, you. We see that this was something Jude was writing to each individual Christian. He's like, you fight for it. He's not writing to a pastor's conference. He's not like, to all the pastors and, and, and missionaries and evangelists, contend for the faith. No, he's like, to all the Christians, fight for the faith. He's writing to average believers, to the whole church. Each one of us has a responsibility to protect the faith. And there are many ways for every Christian to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, hopefully, I hope it's obvious. Um, and I can't believe I even have to say this, but in the world we live in, I have to say this. But I hope it's obvious that we're not talking about physical violence when we're talking about fighting for the faith, okay? And we're not talking about um, going out and looking for an argument and just looking for, all right, pastor said fight. I'm, I'm in a fighting mood. I'm going to go find someone to argue with. And that's not what it is either. I'm not saying that it's okay for you to go be a heresy hunter. You know, there's people who make a living online just going and finding preachers, taking what they say out of context, calling it heresy, and getting hundreds of thousands of views. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is a time to fight. We fight, how do we fight? We fight for truth with truth. We fight for truth, fight for the faith. We fight for truth with truth. Um, we want to tell ourselves that the loving thing is to not confront the error. Just let them do what they want to do. But really the loving thing is to give the truth. The Bible says Jesus was full of grace and truth. Full of truth. But delivered in, in a spirit of grace. And that's how we should be also. So fighting requires both offense and defense of fighting. Offense and defense. A positive and a negative form of fighting for the faith. So the offense, the positive, uh, is, is by teaching sound doctrine to your families, uh, in your small groups, in your group of friends. Teach sound doctrine, true things. Look, your families, your kids, your spouse are are bombarded with lies from, from just the world all day long, and they have to have a foundation of truth. Uh, my family, our, we, we have three kids, and our oldest is Rory, she's five, and at every night, we read the Bible together, and for the last six weeks, we just started this uh, catechism, and it is, you know, 52 essential, kind of foundational um, question and answers of the Christian faith. And every, every week we do a new question and we review all the old questions because I'm trying to pump her full of truth so that whenever she experiences lies in life, she will know that it's a lie. And she'll be like, no, I know the truth. I have a foundation of truth. 
And so a positive way to fight for the faith is to just build the faith in your family. We uh, are in offensive, positive uh, fighting um, by having an unafraid witness of the gospel. That I'm, I'm going to um, share my faith and share um, the faith with people who don't know Jesus around me. A positive witness, a positive uh, uh, fighting is to support the training and equipping of the saints and of pastors. The training and equipping. And so to support things like what's happening today, like this is training, equipping the saints with truth. Um, the women's ministry jail, we, we pump in the truth, you know, and they, they have Bible studies and... and um, Women just show up every week into the jail to bring truth, to bring the faith. Um, supporting that type of thing. Jesse and Kayla, their ministry, you know, they're resident missionaries here, and their ministry is to equip and support. They kind of see themselves as a pastor to pastors. You know, pastors pour out to everyone, and everyone wants to come to the pastor when things are hard. But who's the pastor go to? And so Jesse and Kayla, they're a pastor to pastors, or they're the place where they can... Uh, pour into and encourage and equip. And, uh, and uh, in Central America, they're training pastors. That's a way to fight for the faith, to build up the faith. Pray for pastors who are faithful with the word of God, that they would continue to remain strong in difficult days ahead. Okay, so that's offensive fighting. And then there's a defensive fighting, which is, calling out false teachers. Calling out false teaching. That's what, that's what Jude is doing in this letter. He's like, I'm here to write to you, because I found it necessary, that there are some people who are twisting some things. And let me tell you about it. Let me call it out. It's naming the lie and replacing it with truth. You have to name the lie, replace it with truth. One practical way you can do this in your homes. Whenever you're watching, whatever you watch with entertainment, say you have kids and you're watching Disney, you watch a Disney movie, and it's okay, you know, to, to be entertained or whatever, to, to witness art. Many times the art in it has an agenda and has things that are not true, worldviews that are not true. So, so I'm not saying you get weird with it, but what if after you, like, watch a show, if your child is old enough to really understand this kind of conversation, just have a conversation like, hey, let's just talk about what we watched. And, you know, it seemed, were there some things in there that, uh, you know, seemed a little odd or wrong? And as an adult, I hope you're, you have your discernment on to see the themes that are contrary to the faith, and so you can help teach your children. Look, that whole song that they sang there, it was a nice, catchy tune. Let it go. Let it go. You know, it was so catchy. We're going to be singing that for the rest of our lives now. But, but here's, here's some of the things in that song that aren't true. And to use these opportunities to name the lie and replace it with the truth. Um, we can also uh, fight by withholding um, support and encouragement from false teachers. And, um, and it's, I'm just not going to support 
I'm not going to support false teaching and encourage that, okay? So we fight. Obviously, faithful missionaries and evangelists and pastors contend earnestly for the faith, uh, hopefully, um, but so do Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and parents and, you know, just people who are every day uh, seeking to live faithful to the scriptures. Uh, people like this contend for the faith just as much as a frontline missionary does, and each one of us is responsible and we should contend for the gospel wherever God puts us. Okay, so fight for the faith. And the second thing that we see is um, be cautious of the creeps. Okay? Be cautious of the creeps. Now you're going to see it right in the text. Okay? I don't make this stuff up. Look at verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Look at that. Those creepers. They're just creeping right into the church. And he's like, be cautious of these people. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Be cautious of the creeps. So he says a few things about these creeps. He says that one, they're subtle. They've crept in unnoticed. They don't announce themselves as false teachers. They don't walk into, I'm a false teacher. I'm here to lead people astray. All you who want to give up your faith, come follow me. No, they're subtle. They're sneaky. They're creepy. They deceive. They deceive. You know, we went to camp last week, and there was one kid who... Um, like, from the beginning of camp, he had, he had told us all that he had this condition, which, like, whenever we are leading a camp, we have, like, permission slips. Like, we're, if you have some special condition or allergy or something, we, like, like to know about that and take that seriously. And so he's like, I have this condition. It's called um, spontaneous dental hyperplasia or something. And he's like, is it? Yeah. <laughs> no, he stole this from the office. Okay, great. So he's like, my teeth turned to liquid. All right, you know it, you know it. So if you've seen The Office, I guess I'm not, I've, I'm not caught up on that episode. But yeah, your teeth turned to liquid spontaneously. And he's like, man, I have this problem. I just want to let you guys know. The entire camp was convinced. One night, we, we have like our nightly roundups at the end. And uh, I mean, there was one day during the day, he comes walking out into everybody, and he has white stuff dripping out of his mouth. He's like, oh, no, I'm having an episode. And it's just white dripping out of his mouth, and everybody's like, oh, no, are you okay? It was toothpaste, okay? One night, we have our nightly roundups, and everybody's like, share your highlight of the day. One person's highlight was, I learned something new about the anatomy today. I did not know your teeth could do this. He had deceived us. He deceived. He crept in unnoticed and began to lead people astray. Fortunately, he came clean before the end of camp and told everybody, I was just joking. But, um, but these people, they're, deceive, they're deceiving. They're, they're creeping in. Um, so they're subtle. Don't expect them to just announce themselves. Right? You, you would most likely not know that they're there. Okay? 
And it says also, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. This is encouraging because um, what this shows us is that God's already determined their fate and God will win in the end. That although these people are damaging to the church and we're called to fight against it, that, that God's purposes are not threatened. That they may be hidden to some believers. They're um, subtle and un, uh, unnoticed to believers, but they are not uh, unnoticed to God. And their condemnation was marked out long ago, and their judgment is assured, and the truth will win out, and our responsibility is to be on the side of truth. So he's like, I want you to fight. You need to fight. You need to address these things, but you're going to win. Their condemnation has been marked out long ago. You're on the winning team, so don't worry. It says that they are secular, so if they are subtle and they are secular, ungodly, it says ungodly people. Their character is described as ungodly, which, um, which Jude actually really liked this word. He used it six times in this short 25-verse letter. And um, this word means without worship or reverence. So these men failed to appropriately revere or worship the true God. So it says they're subtle, they've crept in unnoticed, and uh, they are secular, they're ungodly people, and, um, and then they are uh, sensual. Look, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They turn the grace of God, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Now, uh, sensuality, um, if you just take this, like uh, I, I did this, you just take the Greek word there and go look at its other uses in the New Testament, and what you'll find is that uh, the vast majority of them are uh, surrounded in, 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 in context of um, sexual immorality. And so it's the idea of uh, immorality, especially in the sexual form. And uh, maybe you've noticed this, that sexual immorality often follows loose theology. That when people begin to tamper with the faith, and they begin to say, well, that's not really in the Bible, that's not really what God meant by that, or that's not, you know, they begin to tamper um, with the faith. It is oftentimes followed by a life that um, is sexually immoral. They are partaking in things uh, that God would not approve of sexually. Um, kind of one example of this is um, recently is there's this famous now <clears throat> somewhat famous pastor who's uh, presented himself on TikTok. He is a, a self um, identified as homosexual, so-called pastor, and he's been teaching, um, gaining a lot of popularity, but teaching a lot of terrible things. One of the things is that he teaches that Jesus is not the only way to salvation. And, and he says, hey, um, I, I believe that, he, he's like, I personally believe that Jesus is an incarnation of God, but that he's not the only way to God. And so he personally identifies as Christian, that's what he says. He says, I'm a Christian, but yet Jesus is not the only way to salvation. He also says, uh, in one interview, he said that um, he believed Jesus transgendered 
Jesus was transgender because there's this verse that says, Jesus says, you know, uh, Israel, Israel, I, how I longed to take you uh, under my wing like a mother hen would care for her chicks. And he says, Jesus, you know, Jesus even um, wanted, identified as the opposite uh, gender. I mean, it's just, it's gross, it's gross stuff. And, and if I continued, uh, you might, could not bear it. Uh, the, the last one I'll share with you from him, he says this, here's a quote, for most people, sex before marriage is a healthy expression of the gift of sexuality and is not sinful or morally wrong. And, um, and so here's an idea. So, and, and if you watch any of his stuff, as I have, you'll see that, you know, whenever we say, well, he's presented with, well, what about in the epistles where it talks about sexual immorality? He'll just say, I don't believe that was inspired by God. You know, and it's like, well, that's what you have to do. Um, whenever you live sexually immoral life, to curb your guilt, you have to convince yourself um, that the Bible is wrong, um, and and that, and so therefore, I take the grace of God, that God is a good, gracious God, as a license uh, to sin. In this sense, he's like, there's a sexual connotation uh, to people who pervert the grace of God. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, I heard in this room, like, moans and stuff, like, you, you realize that's heresy. That's what I'm talking about. You can call yourself Christian, but that's not Christian. And that's really not what Jude is necessarily addressing. Because he's not talking about necessarily the most blatant heresy person. He's talking about the person who sounds good, but is really distorted. It sounds good. It sounds right. But it's just a, it's just a little twist to what the truth is. Just a pause for a second. That guy I just referenced is influencing young people by the millions. So, like, fight for the faith in your home. Anyway, just, just a warning. Um, what he's warning us against is people who sound good, but they're just a little distorted. He says they've crept in unnoticed. They're, they're subtle, but they're twisting the grace of God and, and turning it into something else. And I've personally experienced this one time. I... I went to a small group. This was years ago. I went to a small group, and it, it wasn't a small group that was part of our church. I, went to, I was just visiting someone else's small group. I went, and this small group had a guest uh, speaker come in. And so the guest speaker, preacher comes in, and so we're all kind of gathered around in this room, and he's giving his presentation. And his whole presentation is what I would call um, hyper-grace. And hyper-grace is the idea that, that you that you say the grace of God is so great that you can pretty much do whatever you want and it be, it's okay. And so, one, so some of the things he taught while we were in that Bible study is that um, you don't have to worry about your sin. Don't think about your sin. Don't worry about your sin. Like you, you should, should, shouldn't even think about anything regarding like putting to death your own sinfulness. Um, just don't worry about it. He even said this. He said, you don't have to ask forgiveness of your sin to God. 
He said, you don't have to ask forgiveness. All you have to do, he said, God, he's forgiven you. So he said, all you have to do is say, thank you, God, for forgiving me. You don't have to ask for forgiveness. Now, the, thing that, the problem I have with that is that when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, pray this way. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And so when someone says something contrary to the teaching of Jesus, you should be be like an alarm bell. And everybody in the room was eating it up. I mean, everybody leaning in, smiling, taking notes. Was he teaching the scriptures? Absolutely not. But boy, did it sound good. And I was conflicted um, because one of the things, he's like, don't, don't worry about your sin. And don't worry about anybody else's sin. Like, don't, it's not a thing. And I'm sitting there conflicted. My heart's pounding. Because I'm like, am I the only one in this room that's like, what the Bible says? <laughs> so at one point, finally gave an opportunity where someone could slip in a question, I Excuse me, what about when Jesus taught, <laughs> and it was in regard to other people, what about when Jesus taught in Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, you should go to him and y'all should like work out. That's like Jesus telling us we should go and like wrestle with, work with, resolve these sin issues in our lives. He's like, oh, no, no, I don't, uh, we don't need, that's, that's something that's completely different than what I'm talking about. We don't even need to talk about that. I was like, Okay. All right. Afterwards, everybody was so enamored, and those are the people. They're the ones who twist the grace of God into license to sin. And it sounds good, and people eat it up, but it is a false teaching. It's false teaching. Grace is not a license to sin. It is an invitation to know God. The grace of God in Christ frees us from the power of sin. Freedom in Jesus, listen to this. Freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do what I want, but the power to do what I should. Let me say that again. Freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do what I want, but the power to do what I should. Paul says, should we, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Should we do whatever we want because we have the grace of God? He says, absolutely not. That grace is not a license to do what I want that I can just sin all I want because God will forgive me. It is an invitation into the presence of a holy God. It's the power to do what you should. It's the power to break your slavery to, to sin. And so these false teachers, they defect from the faith, but then they infect the faith. It says that they deny, verse 4 again, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 
so the idea here is that they denied Jesus as their Lord, which means that he's their master, that he's in control of their life, that he's in charge. They're saying he's my Savior, but my, not my Lord, that Jesus is a means to improve my life, but he certainly is not in charge of my life. That's what this is saying. Um, James Shaddix again says, in the context, what they deny is not the deity or um, his person or his work. What they deny is his lordship. They separate his being savior from his being lord. By their sinful life and exploitation of grace, they deny his lordship in, their, in and over their lives. They are a law unto themselves, accountable to no one, including the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Jude justly condemns them. Deny Jesus as Lord, and you forfeit him as Savior. One goes with the other. They're a package deal not to be separated. So if you say, Jesus is my Savior, I believe in him to get to heaven, but he's not my Lord or Master. He doesn't really control or tell me, or he's not in charge of my day-to-day life or living. Let me ask you, like, is Jesus your master? And here's how you know if Jesus is your master. Can he, um, do you, do, does he change the way you uh, handle your finances? Does he? It's like what he says about how we should live financially, how we should be giving to the missional work of God in the world, how we should be generous to those in need, how we should be good stewards, like, is what he said, does that shape the actual decisions you make with your finances? Does he shape the decisions you make as, um, with your sexuality? Like, it's clear, like, the Bible's clear about sexuality. That all sexual behavior outside of a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman in marriage, all outside of that is sexual immorality. Heterosexual and homosexual, all of it. And so, with that in mind, does he shape the actual decisions you make with your sexuality? Is he your Lord over that area? Are you just saying, no, he's my Savior, Jesus loves me, I'm going to heaven, but he's not going to shape my sexuality or my relationship? Does he shape how you parent? You know, the Bible says some stuff about parenting. And does that actually inform how you parent your children? Does he shape what you um, entertain yourself with? What I'm saying is that I think a lot of Christians, and myself included to to an extent, like we struggle with this conflict between what we um, say we believe Jesus is a Savior but we live as though he doesn't exist. We live as though I'm Lord, I'm master, I'm in charge, but I believe some things in the Bible. And uh, that can't be so. So what should I do? Be cautious of the creeps. What should I do? Um, Compare what they say to the scripture. Uh, You know, in Acts chapter 17, Paul brought the gospel to the people of Berea. And um, it's called being a Berean. You know, now it's known in the Christian world as be, be a Berean. And what, why it's called that is because when Paul brought the faith, the gospel, 
to the people of Berea, what they did was they're like, this sounds really good. And then it says, let us search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And so they're like, Paul, let's put, let's put a pause on it. Like the apostle Paul. Okay? Let's put a pause for a second. Give us some time. And we're going to search the, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And what they found was what he was saying was true. And so whenever you hear something that's new or seems too good to be true or um, is just a little strange, whenever you experience a, a new teaching, just say, let us search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Compare what they say to the Bible. And so these two verses can be summarized in these two ways. Verse 3 is the idea of doctrine. The doctrinal piece. To know the faith. To fight for the faith. That's doctrinal. And um, verse 4 is the practical piece. To live the faith. To be cautious of the Cretes who tried to distort the grace of God um, and to be sure that I allow my faith to inform my morals, my ethics, my practices. And so verse 3 is the doctrinal piece, and verse 4 is the practical piece. The things that I know about the faith should inform my life, my practice, my morals. I want you um, to know today, because all of us in this room are imperfect sinners. And maybe you've made some decisions um, that, as we've discovered today, are, would not be honoring to God, not part of God's best for you. They are sinful. I know I have. We don't come in here because we believe we're perfect and awesome and isn't God blessed to have us as part of his church. We come in here because we know that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And, um, and by the power of God's grace, we have a sin-fighting nature that causes us to push against the thing in us that wants to do what is wrong, what is wicked. And so if you've made some decisions that maybe you regret or the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, I want you to know there is God's grace and forgiveness for you. The Bible says if you repent of your sin, turn from it, you identify that sin as that's not good. That's sin. Um, and you turn to God, He'll accept you with open arms. And so um, there's forgiveness for you. There's forgiveness for you. So I don't want you to, to leave here in condemnation. But there's forgiveness. If you're a person in this room who distorts the grace of God into sensuality or a license to sin. Either repent or be condemned. That the end does not look good for you and some of the harshest warnings in the Bible are against you. And so be careful not to distort the grace of God into sensuality, a license to sin. My desire is that you would be able to say at the end of your life, 
as Paul was able to say at the end of his life when he wrote to his apprentice Timothy in 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4 7, where he says, I have fought the good fight. I've wrestled, I've agonized, I've struggled, I've protected it, I've done what I could to fight the, for the faith. I've fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith to the end. And that's my desire for you. That every Christian would say, I've kept the faith. I've fought the good fight. Let me close with this question. What happens if we don't fight? What happens if we ignore this message and we don't fight? Well, that we will talk about next week. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, your grace for us that you, uh, by uh, your son, the death for our sin, the payment uh, for our sinfulness, God, I thank you that you have conquered death in the grave and that by your grace you empower us not to just go sin, but you empower us to fight against our sinfulness. And Lord, I pray uh, that your word and your spirit today would go out and, and strengthen Christians to fight for the faith, that we would know the faith and that we would defend it vigorously. And I pray. Uh, that we would do so, as your word says, with all gentleness and, res and respect, that we would not be arrogant, obnoxious, contentious Christians, but that in gentleness and respect that we would confront lies with truth. Lord, I pray if there's a person in the room who um, has never trusted you for salvation, maybe even some point in their life they affirmed you as Savior, but have never surrendered their life to you as Lord and Master. I pray that today, your Holy Spirit would just move on their heart to confess you as Savior and Lord and Master and surrender control of their life to you. I pray that every single one of us, Lord, as Christians would grow in our ability to say yes to you uh, in every practical area of life. That our faith would influence our practice. Lord, we can only do any of this by Your Holy Spirit empowering us and Your grace. And so I thank You for that. And I pray that You would uh, change us this week, Lord. That we would be people who fight for the faith and are cautious for the creeds. That we'd be discerning in every encounter. Well, we love you. And we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.